Well, this morning we are going to continuing in this uh, series called Catechesis as we explore certain questions uh, out of the Westminster Larger Catechism. And we'll be in several passages today. The first passage that we're going to read, called the central passage of the sermon today, is uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, being Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So we continue in this series on Reformed Doctrine, moving from question one of the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, which was about our highest purpose in our lives, being to glorify God and to enjoy him fully forever. Uh, and we move from question one all the way to question 55, and, uh, which asks the question, how does Christ make intercession? How does Christ make intercession? And, you know, what does it mean that Christ intercedes for us? We may be able to answer that with respect to the cross and uh, our salvation, which is absolutely true. But, but how does Christ intercede for us today as Christians? Because he always lives, as we just read, to make intercession for his people. What does the intercession of Christ mean for us now? And, and, and this actually, just as our question one of the catechism speaks to uh, this, you know, one of, the big, one of the big major questions that everybody asks, which is, what is the purpose of life? Why am I here? Well, similarly, uh, this question is actually answering, helping to answer another huge question that people ask uh, in this life, which is, what is wrong with the world? With all its beauty and wonder, how is this world so wrong? And then also, can it be made right? Can it be made right? Now, our answer as Christians is, of course, uh, that what is wrong with the world is sin. And, uh, you know, if, if what's... What's wrong with the world? I'm wrong with the world, right? It's me. <laughs> and so, uh, but also that sin is in the world, sin is in me, uh, but can it be made right? The answer is yes, in Jesus Christ. And part of the way that the world is being made right is through the intercession of Jesus Christ. Because, and we, and we have to, we have to, you know, you get into the answer, because when we go to answer that question, some people will try to supply other answers, you know, and so there's kind of a, a blind optimism that people will adopt that, you know, can the world be right? Well, if we just hang on long enough, it'll just get better. Why? I don't know. So it just, it just will. Okay. Um, it, it, there's also, but also uh, even uh, the unrelenting pessimist, though, cannot, uh, like if someone is just an unrelenting pessimist, for some reason, you cannot eradicate uh, the, the, this, 
this hope that people have, this hope that people have that things will get better. Like, so it's like, even though blind optimism doesn't work, pessimism doesn't work either. There's this ingrained hope that is in humanity that says things have to get better somehow, in some way. And this is indeed actually reflecting the image of God in them. Now today, many on the political right and left in our country place their hope not in God, but in culture and society, that if we can just perfect it, if we can just get the institutions, the proper institutions and the government to do the right things or make people do the right things, then that will go a long way to solving the problem. But as Herman Bavink, the Dutch scholar, pointed out more than a century ago, the more progress culture makes, the longer the road we see there is to travel. The more we subdue nature under our feet, the, the, the clearer of a sense of our own helplessness we feel. The more problems we solve, the more complex and challenging the world becomes. This is not to devalue improvement and growth, but it just reinforces what, uh, to be honest, we already knew. That humanity at its very best and even at its greatest improvement cannot be the answer to fix what is ultimately wrong with the world. And we can't turn to nature either. I was just, uh, we just went camping out in nature. We we went and we did this eight-mile hike and, um, yesterday, and, and I was limping uh, into my house last night as we got back. Um, but uh, nature is beautiful, but there is, a, there is a merciless cruelty that comes with that beauty. Because if you just go, well, I'll just turn to nature to care for me. It's like, well, we will go find your body, all right, because it is not going to take care of you, all right? In a fallen world, without someone to intercede on our behalf, to do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves, all we have to comfort ourselves is the illusion of making the best of it while we can or just embracing despair. So this morning, we're going to explore a bit more kind of what we just got into here, which is why we need an intercessor. And then secondly, delve into the opening of, of the answer to the question of how Jesus is the perfect intercessor in the intercessory ministry of Christ. In fact, the answer to this question in the Westminster Large Catechism is so rich that I had planned to do two other questions. We're just going to finish out October on this one. <laughs> so, uh, so we're going to dive into this uh, in detail on not just the intercessory ministry of Christ on the cross, but particularly how Christ intercedes for his people always and even for you and I today. And I think that if you hang in there and you come and you listen, you will actually come away from this series greatly encouraged and strengthened in your faith. And, and re even increase in your worship and wonder at your Savior. So, uh, so first, let's uh, get into why we need an intercessor. And first, uh, you know, we're going to get into some obvious territory here, especially if you've been in church for a while. Uh, but uh, we need uh, an intercessor because we are sinners. 
So shocking news today from the pastor in the pulpit. You, you and I were all a bunch of sinners. Uh, and we are sinners who are incapable of interceding for ourselves or for others. The scriptures say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That was one of the things when I first heard the, the, the gospel presented to me as a 16-year-old is I did not need anyone to actually tell me I was a sinner. That was the part of the gospel presentation that I really understood and readily agreed with. I was like, yes, check, all right? Yes, okay, that's me. Uh, but, it, this, uh, it, but the reality is, is that because we are sinners, we cannot intercede for ourselves. We cannot intercede on, 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 intercede on, on behalf of others. And there's a simple logic to this. A criminal cannot, cannot intercede on behalf of himself, especially a guilty criminal. A, a guilty criminal cannot, at the sentencing phase of the trial, say, Your Honor, I am guilty and I stand in for myself to receive the punishment of the guilty. You're like, okay, you're weird. All right, you're just getting the thing you deserve. That's all you're getting. But nor can the guilty stand in place of the other guilty because they have their own crimes that they're guilty of before the court, and in this case, before God. Even in theory, the scriptures tell us that even if a man was per perfectly and purely righteous, one who had never done any wrong in thought, word, or deed for all of his life, would be unable to intervene for anyone else. Because all they have done is what was required of them for themselves. All they have done is meet the standard. All they have done is get to zero. That's it. No one has done extra. And this idea, this in the Roman Catholic, the idea that um, they called it supererogation, where, uh, where saints have done more good works than they needed. Our confession is very clear that at the end of the day, when we've done all the things, even the greatest of all Christians at the end of the day, and we've done all, the, all of our wonderful good deeds, we are but unworthy servants uh, before the Lord. And so all the, all a, the, the righteousness of a, of a perfect man or woman would go to simply meeting the standard of holiness. And so we need someone to go before the Lord for us who is not a sinner, but who is also able to intervene on our behalf. So someone who is greater than even a perfect man, a perfect human being. Because we need to be saved from the judgment that we deserve. And the author of Hebrews is one of the greatest uh, uh, arguments, most developed arguments on uh, the, the ministry of Christ, and particularly his priestly ministry. It has uh, just chapter after chapter, from Hebrews chapter 5 to Hebrews chapter 10, at the very least, are just this elaborate development of the ministry of Christ. And, and so the author of Hebrews makes this point with respect to, uh, as he's talking about the priesthood, and the priests would come and they would, remember, their job is to intercede. Their job is to go between God and the people by offering the sacrifices. But the author of Hebrews highlights in Hebrews 10, verse 11, that every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That is, there is nothing inherent in killing an animal that would stand in for the removal of sin from a person. 
God says very clearly in scriptures, I don't need blood. I don't need animals. I'm not hungry. All right. And uh, he says, he says, look, uh, I'm simply declaring in my mercy that I will receive this dead animal in the place of the sinner because the sinner deserves to die. But rather than having you die, I will take the death of this animal in your place. Why? Because I declare it so. Because, you know, it's it, and because and that helps to answer the question. It's like, well, if God doesn't if, if the if the sacrifices, the blood sacrifices don't actually take away sins in themselves. And uh, and if God doesn't actually need the blood, then then why doesn't God accept fruit baskets? Why does he say blood has to be spilled? Well, because the penalty of sin is death. Something has to die. But again, there's no inherent reason why the death of this goat or this sheep or the bull would apply to me or to the entire people of God. And what we're seeing here, what the author of Hebrews is telling us, is that the priests of the Old Covenant were incapable in themselves of being true intercessors for the people of God, even though that was their job assigned to them by God. What the book of Hebrews argues at length is that both the priesthood of Aaron and the sacrificial system point to and find their efficacy in Jesus Christ. The reason the sacrifices of the Old Covenant did take away sins, and they did, was not because of the blood of the goats or because of the purity of the sacrifice, but because they pointed forward to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. That means... Uh, that well, we'll get into actually get into more of that later. But but for those who have been in the church, Christ's work as our great high priest, dying on the cross for our sin, has been well taught, and I and and I hope readily received and understood. But what is often understood and neglected, or or misunderstood, is is the the present intercessory of, of ministry of Christ, and so. Because we need the, the intercessory ministry of Christ as sinners so that way we can become saints. That way we can become children of God. We can be forgiven and accepted and pardoned and given eternal life. But also, we need an intercessor because Christians need strength in this life. If we were incapable of interceding for ourselves before God prior to our salvation... Why would we act as though we are capable of doing it after coming to faith? Once we have been forgiven of our sins, adopted into the family of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit, can we now act as our own advocate before God? The answer, according to the scriptures, is no. For one thing, in believing the gospel, we are declared righteous, but... We are not actually righteous in our person, in our character. We are given a new heart and a new nature, yet we have a remaining corruption within us that prevents us from appealing, uh, from, from, from uh, going to God and obeying God and loving God every, in, in every way. It, it prevents us from appealing to God the Father and say, God, look at all my good works. Look at the merit of my life and accept me now. I am a Christian, 
I've been into your grace, and now I've done good works. Now accept me. That's not how it works. Further, we cannot be intercessors simply because of our limitations. We don't know everything. Some of us just act like we know everything, right? But, but we don't actually know everything. We're unable to do most things, and most of the things that we, especially the most important things that we want done, that we need done, that we most earnestly desire to be done, we can't do them. We face all kinds of insurmountable evils and sorrows in this life. This is why we pray. Somebody might say, though, okay, I hear you, but what about that fancy type of prayer that I hear you talk about called intercessory prayer? where we intercede for other people by praying for them? Are we not interceding for others in that case? Well, you say, well in a sense, yes. But we're, we're interceding for others, but not based on our own righteousness. We actually are appealing to the present, the ongoing intercessory ministry of Christ every time we pray because Whose name do we pray in? Jesus' name. As Christians, we don't go to God and say, I pray this in my name, Lord. We wouldn't even think that. I pray this in the name of Christ. Why? Because he's interceding for us. Because he says, by me, I make your prayers heard and effective. And you are prayers, you can be sure they are heard when they are prayed in my name. That's what Christ says. Why? Because he is going between us and the Father. All this comes, uh, or all this brings us to a very important truth, a rather obvious truth, that we cannot save ourselves. Before we came to faith, we can't do it now. It's just not going to happen. We were saved through the intercession of Christ on his cross and his resurrection on earth before we were even born. The intercessory ministry of Christ was at work. And we are being saved by Christ's continued intercessory ministry in heaven. The common problem for Christians is that we have this tendency towards error. Often liken it to when you're driving and you just let go of the wheel. What's going to happen? Your car is going to drift. Right? We have this tendency to drift off into error. We tend to emphasize the intercession of Jesus for our entrance into the new covenant by grace through faith. But then we tend to slide without realizing it into uh, acting as if our life is now dependent upon the righteousness we build for ourselves. Some take that into a legalistic direction. As if God now requires us to redeem ourselves for our righteousness. You've got into the family. Now if you want to stay in the family, you've got to follow the rules or we're going to kick you out. Others will take it into a more lawless direction. and As, as if the Christian life is left up to each individual to simply define for themselves whether or not it contradicts scripture. But Jesus is the intercessor that we need. The Westminster Larger Catechism speaks of Christ's intercessory ministry in in a very particular way. And we're just getting to the beginning part of the answer here to the question of how does Christ make intercession? And what is said here applies certainly to what Christ has done for us on the cross, but it applies to his, his, his intercessory ministry for us for the whole of our lives. 
And that first, that, that Christ's intercessory ministry is in the fact that Jesus appears in heaven before the Father continually. Jesus appears in heaven before the Father continually. In Hebrews 7, the author writes that Jesus is the true high priest of a better covenant. This is where we come to the passage that we read at the beginning. The former priests were many in number. Why did you have to have so many priests? Because they would die, right? Very practical reason. Because people die and they have to be replaced. But Jesus holds the priesthood permanently. Why? Because he never dies. He continues forever. Consequently, because he never dies, because he continues forever in this priesthood, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession for his people. That's memory verse time. He always lives to make intercession for his people. The other priests, they did fine for the most part within their limitations, but not only were their sacrifices ineffectual, but, they, but, the, but the priests themselves had to be replaced again and again and again. What this passage is making clear is that Christ himself is the living intercession for his people. While he, as long as he is in heaven, he is interceding for his people. He is the living intercession for his people. In Hebrews 9, verse 24, the writer highlights that Jesus has entered not merely the temple that was made with human hands. The tabernacle and the temple, he says, were copies of a heavenly reality. Jesus has entered heaven itself, which is the true tabernacle, which is the true temple of God. And he has done so to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. In this, Jesus entered the true holy of holies, as the author says in chapter 9, verse 12. But he didn't do it like the high priest going in the temple year after year, bringing the blood of goats and calves. No, Jesus entered by his own blood. And in so doing, he secured eternal redemption for his people. Herman Bovink makes an important clarification here. Quote, Christ did not take with him his blood that he shed on the cross to sprinkle it in the heavenly sanctuary and thereby get, win the atonement for his people. But by the means of his blood, on the, on the basis of the sacrifice he made on the cross, he secured for himself the right to enter heaven, to appear in God's presence on our behalf. It is true that Jesus entered heaven to be seated in the, on his heavenly throne to embrace his honor and right as the king of kings. But he is also our high priest who entered the heavenly sanctuary. And while he sits on the throne, he is there on behalf of his people. Jesus went into heaven for you and for me. The testimony of our redemption, he bears in the marks upon his resurrected body. The simple point here is that part of the reason Jesus went into heaven was so that he would continue his intercessory ministry as the living sacrifice for our sins, as the one who took our punishment once for all time. 
This helps us understand the picture that uh, John gives uh, or the, in the, the vision that he was given in the book of Revelation where he says, and I, I behold, he hears, I heard the words, behold, the, the lion of Judah. He said, and I turned and I saw a lamb standing as though slain. That Jesus is there as the living sacrifice, the living intercession for his people. It's upon this very idea that John in his first letter draws when he writes that we ought to confess our sins. Why? Because we have an advocate before the Father and he's sitting on the throne. Our confidence and hope in our salvation that God will forgive us of our sins is not in us but in the fact that Jesus, Jesus is in heaven before the Father and seating for us always that whole idea is like oh you you need help with that don't worry i know a guy right and it's like and the higher up they are the better they better it is right it's like you need help with salvation and sins i know a guy right and even better he's not just in the court he's he's actually the guy sitting on the throne The Westminster Larger Catechism also stresses that Jesus not only stands in the, in the presence of the Father continually as our advocate, but he also stands in our nature continually. And this is a, a, a point that's often missed, a, a, an element, a dimension that we often uh, don't, don't think about, which is that the Son of God, if, if we recall, took to himself a human nature in his incarnation, we celebrate at Christmas time, that thing, thing he did that we celebrate at Christmas, he took to himself to come into the world to save his people. And in the resurrection, the ascension, he, re, he did not shed his human nature. He took his human nature into heaven, which is now glorified. And the author of Hebrews draws on this reality in chapter 4 when he writes in verses uh, 14 through 16, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and by grace to help, in, to help in time of need. The scriptures here acknowledge our weakness and need, but encourage us to hold on to the faith because we have a Savior who is not only perfectly divine, but is also perfectly human and knows what we go through as human beings. Except he doesn't have that flaw that we have called sin. It is because he is in heaven interceding for us that we can boldly go to the throne of grace. Christ in his perfected and glorified humanity is the living intercession that secures our hopes of resurrection and endurance in times of trial. And finally, the catechism tells us that Jesus stands in the merit of his works. He stands in our, in, in, in our nature, in human nature, before the Father continually, in the merit of his obedience and his sacrifice. 
Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. This is our last passage here. Speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. So here at the end of the sermon, I'm saying explicitly some things that we have been assuming and implying throughout the sermon. That the intercessory ministry of Christ carries the perfection of his ministry on earth into heaven, which is, uh, which is both a throne room and a sanctuary. He carries his ministry in through himself. He doesn't carry with it like in a briefcase of documents. He carries it with him in his own body, resurrected and glorified. Jesus, the one who is uniquely fully God and fully man, carries with him his perfect sacrifice upon the cross for our sins, his wounds that brought us peace with God the wounds by which he satisfied the wrath of God for our sins, he carries that with him into the heavenlies. His perfect obedience by which he establishes the righteousness that he clothes his people in, that righteousness that God says, I'm going to treat you according to his righteousness, that righteousness he carries with him before the sight of the Father. So that when God, when God the Father goes to address us, to treat us, to, to do something with us, he does so according to the righteousness of his Son that is right there before him in the throne room. The merit of our forgiveness, our pardon, our righteousness, the guarantee of a future inheritance in the coming age, Citizenship in the, coming of the, in the coming kingdom of God is in heaven. It's not locked away in the heavenly storage room, but it is there, sitting on the throne in the person of Jesus Christ. All this is to say that what has gone wrong with the world is sin and death and fallen humanity. We know that. But the answer of how it's being made right is only found in Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that, that as I've presented it to you, there isn't a distinction really in terms of the intercess intercessory ministry of Christ and simply like this is you know, a hard line how Christ's ministry uh, is before you're a believer and then after you're a believer. And like as his, he continues to intercede for his people all throughout our lives. As we come to faith, as we live in faith, Christ continues to intercede. Why? Because he is in heaven. He was in heaven before you were born, before I was born. 2,000 years ago on a cross, he died. He was in the tomb for three days, rose again was with his disciples for 40 days. He has been in heaven ever since. 
and he will be in heaven until he returns. But until he does, and even then, because when he comes back, it's going to be the great final judgment. And we'll talk about it. We'll talk about essentially that next week. But we have always an advocate before us, before the Father in heaven. Not because the Father is just waiting to take you down a peg. And Jesus is like, oh, I'm going to hold you back. The Father planned this for Christ to be the advocate. Christ became our advocate, and he remains our advocate. He stands in heaven as the living testimony that we are forgiven, accepted, and loved by the Father. That is how Christ intercedes for you today. That's huge. We, we miss that. Uh, um, Martin Luther, before he came to the realization of the gospel, he was terrified of Jesus. Terrified of Jesus. Because Jesus was the bringer of wrath along with the Father. You know, Mary was the soft, nice one you get to pray to. But not Jesus. That is not the picture the scriptures teach us, that they show us. They do show Jesus coming back in you know, Revelation 19 with you know, blood and vengeance and all the, the, the full deal against the, against the enemies of God. But for his people, he is the advocate. He is our advocate. And he always lives to make intercession for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have an intercessor. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save. Uh, we cannot intercede for ourselves. We cannot intercede for others. As hard as we might pray, as much good as we might do, it is all so riddled with, with fallenness and sin and, and error for that it would have no effect. It would have the exact opposite effect. But in Christ, we have the perfect intercessor. We have the one that goes between and who always lives to make intercession for his people who is the perfect high priest, who has made the once-for-all sacrifice, fulfilling the sacrificial system such that we don't need any more blood spilt because the perfect blood of Jesus has been spilt for us. We don't need another high priest because we have a living high priest in Jesus Christ of a greater order than that of Aaron and the Levites. And so, Father, we pray that we would go from here today rejoicing that we have Christ as our advocate, as our high priest, as the one making intercession for us. And because he does, we know that that intercession will never fail. We know that our prayers will be perfected and answered. We know that we will come into the kingdom of God and into glory because of Jesus. May we rejoice May we be comforted. May you bless your people with that truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand.